All right, look with me, please. First John, chapter five, and I'm, I want to actually let's go ahead and read. I, I was debating on whether reading this entire chapter or not. We're not even actually going to honestly get into this chapter tonight in itself, but I want to before we enter this last chapter or begin our study in this last chapter of First John. I want to again remind you of some truths that we've already previously studied, but in light of what we see in this chapter. 1 John is a phenomenal book, as I hope you've already seen throughout our study, if you didn't realize that before now. But also chapter 5 is phenomenal itself, because in chapter 5, John literally provides us a summary of pretty much everything he's already stated in the first four chapters. And though he has given more detail in the previous four chapters of these truths, we find that in chapter 5, he articulates it in such a way to where he again just makes this case that of, of the evidence that is present in those who, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that he summarizes again all the previous chapters, all four chapters in reality in this one chapter, but he does it all for this purpose. In the previous chapters, he has, in, in black and white language, he has just said in absolute terms, definitive terms, that if you claim this, that yet this isn't true, then you don't know God. And if you, if you do this, and, and then you do not know God. While if you are, uh, this is representative of your life, then you are a follower of Christ. But again, we've seen very clearly throughout the study, especially over the last two or three weeks of our study in First John, that it is not one evidence that is the proof of one's relationship with God. There is no one evidence alone. It is the culmination of all of these tests that are the proof and evidence that one is in genuine relationship and fellowship with God. And again, I find that so comforting. And so if, you, if I can use the term, I want to be careful with this term, though it is a biblical term, uh, assurance, if you will, but yet it's so misused today. But it is so assuring. There's such reassurance, if you will. And what I mean by that is not that we need some feeling to overwhelm us, to remind us that we're a child of God. I'm talking about we have confidence because of the overwhelming evidence that is present in the lives of those who know the Lord, period. And that's what John is showing us so clearly in this text. So let's read 1 John chapter 5, and we'll go ahead and read through the entirety of the chapter. And I do this for a reason. I'm going to go ahead and point this out now. I want you, as we read, to pay attention closely to how John speaks and writes in chapter 5 and see if it doesn't sound familiar to what he has already stated in the previous four chapters. So let's begin in chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth and the Spirit, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we, confess, or I'm sorry, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because 
he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. A great chapter and a great summarization of everything that John has already mentioned in the previous four chapters. I hope that you caught on to that as we've read through this text of the familiar language that is being used and the statements that are being made that are very familiar should be to us after our weeks and months of study through this epistle thus far. It's been actually six months now since we began the study of 1 John, and in this time we have examined eight tests of authentic relationship and fellowship which John provided within chapters 2 through 4. And these tests, as I've seen, I've mentioned and have shown to you many times, these tests are objective, and therefore they do not allow for any subjectivity. And this simply means that each of these tests are absolute regarding the evidence which they reveal in one's life. In other words, these tests are black and white. Within chapter 5 of this epistle, John somewhat again summarizes these tests and these evidences that are present within the life of those in whom the Spirit of God dwells, in the life of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, in the life of those who have a relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Since this chapter is a summarization of the previous four chapters, it is important for us to remember the details of all John has already declared throughout the previous chapters. And for this reason, before we, begin to delve into, before we begin to delve into this chapter, as I mentioned earlier, I want to review the eight tests which John has provided up to this point in his epistle to remind you of some of the highlights of what he's already dealt with up to this point. And again, to, well, before we enter into the summarization in chapter 5 and his conclusion in chapter 5 of this epistle. So if you've been with us throughout our study of 1 John, then again, you should have noticed and picked up this familiar language that John uses in this fifth chapter and the truths that are stated. As we've discovered throughout the past six months of our study of this epistle, these tests are progressive in nature. They build one upon the other in reality. And we see that each of these tests, therefore, are building upon the other, even up until the end and, and the conclusion of all that John states. So we begin, first of all, I want to review these eight tests tonight. That's where we're going to spend our time, just going through these, not in great detail, but again, reminding you of these tests, pointing you back to where they are, and, and again, emphasizing some of the highlights throughout this, uh, these passages. First is the obedience test in chapters 2, 3 through 6, and we'll read verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, let me remind you of the word know here, and we're going to deal with this more in chapter 5, obviously, but the word know as we will see, as used in chapter 5, for instance, in verse 13, where John says, These things have I written unto you, that ye may know that you have eternal life. The word know, as used in that verse, in chapter 5, 13, 
it literally means understanding. And it's interesting because John also writes in the latter part of chapter 5 concerning our understanding, that we might have this understanding. And he says, I've written all of this to you that you might understand that you have eternal life. This is the understanding which God has provided us through his word, through the spirit which enlightens us to the truth of his word, even as believers, of course. Two of the words John uses in verse 3 are important in providing irrefutable evidence of the authenticity of one's fellowship with the Lord. The first one is that word keep, when he says, hereby we do know that we know him, hereby we have certainty and understanding that we know God if we keep his commandments. And the word keep means to guard, as we have seen, is from loss, to guard from loss or injury uh, properly by keeping the eye upon. In other words, it's to, to not only observe, but to keep a watch on, to keep an eye on, if you will, in observing and looking and, 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 and cherishing and valuing these things. And so John uses this word keep, it's interesting, instead of the word do. And again, I, I said to you weeks back that one can do something without actually having any real respect or love for that which they do. Yet when one cherishes something, or when they consider it to be of value, they will guard over it and do whatever is necessary to keep it, to observe it, to give watch and keep an eye on it. The second word here that's of extreme importance is commandments. Notice as well that John does not speak of doing the law, but rather keeping his commandments. Jesus answered the question, as to which was the greatest commandment, by declaring in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So again, Jesus says, Most importantly is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Second commandment is like unto that, very similar to it, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you remember, in John's Gospel, Jesus gives to them a new commandment to his disciples. And he says, this is a new commandment that I give unto you. What was it? That you love one another even as I have loved you. The commandment from Deuteronomy was that they love each other as they love themselves. And then that's carried over as well into the New Testament. But then Jesus comes along and says, wait, there's something greater than you loving someone as you love yourself. And that is that you love one another as I have loved you. And the emphasis, of course, was that you are mine, I am yours, and that it's my love in you now that it should be reciprocated to one another. And that's why here when he says the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So everything hinges on these two commandments. But what we again must understand is in making that statement, Jesus, again, is really expounding upon the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Because the first portion of the Ten Commandments deals with what? Loving the Lord your God, submitting unto Him, honoring Him, our relationship to Him as God. And then the second part of the commandments of the Decalogue deal with what? It's our relationship with one another. We're not to steal, we're not to kill, we're not to covet remember all of these commandments that were given and so when he says the first is, is second is like unto it what he's saying is this this law of god is to love god and when you love god then you will be loving others as god's love has been demonstrated and manifested to you and he says the law and prophets hang on these on this truth of the decalogue if you will second is the love test here you find this progressive nature chapter 2 verses 7 through 14 we'll read verses 9 through 11 he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. 
But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Regardless of what one may claim, genuine fellowship with God will be evidenced by one's love for God, obedience to God, submission to God, and love for those whom God loves. If this, is, if this evidence is not present within one's life, then they are not in the light. They are not walking in the light, but they are walking in the darkness. And that's what John is pointing out so clearly here. Then third, the life test. Chapters two, or chapter 2, 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Here's what we find here. Our love is revealed by that which we treasure or that which we value. And we do. We love and value, or we show our love in that which we value or that which we cherish. This is true concerning our lives and that which we love in life. If someone loves the world, they can make whatever claim they want, but sooner or later their love for the world is going to be displayed in how they look, respond, and interact within the world. If someone says, I love the Lord, and yet they give their lives over to the world, and when we speak of the world, we're talking about the worldly culture, and, and when I say worldly culture, we're talking about the wickedness that is in the world. And so, if we give ourselves over to the world and the ways of the world, the wickedness that is in the world, the person who does such a thing, though he may claim to love the Lord, he's living a life that is in displaying that which he truly seeks or sees as valuable, and that which he truly cherishes. And so we see here that that love will be displayed in how one looks and responds and interacts within the world. Yet, at the same time, on the other hand, if one loves the Lord Jesus Christ, then that love will display itself just as much so, if not more so. Jesus stated in Matthew six nineteen through 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither rot, moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Jesus is saying there, of course, is what you seek and what you deem, what you seek after and what you deem to be valuable or necessary reveals the reality of the love of your heart. So what you value and what you cherish. I've said this, I was talking to a friend of mine just today, and I've said this to you before, and, and we'll get to this in a moment concerning truth, but let me go ahead and get ahead of myself a little bit, that I make a statement, I've made this to you before, and I make this to my family. They know this truth of me. They know this is to be a reality. But people look at you a little funny when you make statements like I'm about to make, but if you think it through from an eternal biblical world view and perspective, even in the light of the words of what Jesus said himself, then you have to agree that this is correct, as odd as it may sound in our Americanized Christian culture, within even the church today. I love my family, but I love truth more than I love my family. Now, you, you, you hear me say that, and you look at me and go, well, what do you mean by that? Or, wait a minute, how can you say such a thing? Well, let me explain it to you. If I love my family more than I love truth, then I will dismiss truth for the sake of my family. But if I love truth more than I love my family, I will lead and guide and correct my family, instruct my family in the truth out of love for both the truth and for them. 
And so we are to love truth. And Jesus said, if a man does not hate his father and mother, does Jesus mean there that we are literally to despise our parents? Of course not. And is he, is he only saying that if my, your love for me, uh, or if your love for your parents, if your love for me does not ex- exceed or supersede your love for your parents, then you cannot be my disciple? Is that what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you are to love me and you are to love truth above all else. And our love for Christ and for his truth is to so much so supersede any other love that everything else would be viewed as hatred from that perspective. So Jesus is not, he tells us, the scriptures tell us clearly, do they not, that we are to honor our father and mother, right? Well, that's not despising them, that's not hatred. So how can you reconcile these things? Because Jesus isn't saying show hatred towards your family. He's saying love me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Above everything else, love me. And so we see it all is truly reconciled in if we understand the teaching of Scripture, even in the words of our Lord. And so we are to love truth above all else. And if we value, again, truth, then truth will permeate from our very being. And we will receive truth, and we will be changed by truth, and we will invite and welcome truth, and we will hear truth. As John says, if we are of God, then we heareth that which is from God. But those who are of the world do not hear. Why? Because they're not of God. And so we love truth. We receive truth. And our love even for our family is demonstrated in our instruction and guidance and correction concerning truth. Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, if you recall, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, he said, because I hast left thy first love. And this verse, again, does not say the church had lost its first love, as many would quote or claim it does. He said that they had left their first love. And we've dealt with this before, but I want to review this again because this is of great importance. As we see in the example of the church at Ephesus, one can hate evil. In verse 2 of Revelation, it says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. So you can despise evil. One can hold to the truth and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. So you can test them according to truth. One can be faithful in service, number three, in verse 3, and has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted, and yet still like in love for and to the Savior. In verse 4, he goes on to say, nevertheless. Despite the fact that you hate evil, despite the fact that you test those that, are, uh, that claim to be apostles by the standard of my word, my truth, despite the fact that, that you can be faithful in service, he said, nevertheless, nonetheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast, thou hast left thy first Love. And so one will live for that which they love. Your life, my life, testifies to the truth or lie of your or my professed fellowship with God. Then number four, the truth test, which I said we were getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Chapter 2, 18 through 24, we'll read verse 21. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. The previous verses of this passage reveal that this test of truth is centered on the person and claims of Jesus himself. So when he speaks of the truth here, it's not, he's not talking about some generic truth. There really is no generic truth. But for the sake of the conversation or argument, he's not saying some generic truth. He's talking specifically about the truth of the claims of Christ. And so in other words, John's emphasis in this portion of this, uh, of this text is on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Anointed One, he is the Son of God. 
John further explains that people can be associated with the church, surround themselves with truth, and yet still not be in authentic relationship and fellowship with God. He goes on to say, or he says previous to verse 21 in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So here John is saying, oh, they went out from us. They were associated with us. They, They claimed to be a part of us. They quote-unquote fellowship with us in a physical sense. They associated with us. They had joined hands with us. They had joined arm-in-arm with us. But guess what happened? They left us. Why did they leave us? Because they were really not of us. And he says that it it became evident, the truth came out about them that they were not genuinely of us. So receiving the truth alone is not the real evidence of salvation in one's life. Let me say it to you like this. You can know all the doctrine, all the teaching, all the scriptures that you want, and that is not evidence that you know the Lord Jesus Christ or that you are in fellowship with God. And that's what John is saying here. They walked with those who walked in truth. They were associated with them. They were familiar with them. They were friends with them. And yet they left because they were not of the truth. So it is not just knowing the truth in the sense of hearing it or receiving it, even in the parable of the seed, if you recall with me, or the sower, where the four soils were involved. Remember, and Jesus is speaking to them, and he says that the sower went out and sowed the seed. And remember, there was some seed that fell on ground that when it fell, it it sprung up. But then it was choked out. Remember that? Is that not exactly what John is talking of here? Of course it is. He's saying, oh, yeah, and they received the the word with joy. But then when the heat came, when the pressure came, when it was time to to toe the line, so to speak, they're gone. Why? Because it really had no root in them whatsoever. Even though it appeared to, it appeared to be good, it appeared to be productive, it appeared to be Uh, uh, that it would be fruitful, and yet it took no such form. Why? Because it had no root. And ultimately, if you want to boil it down to the the nitty-gritty of it all, let me say this, the reason it did not take root is because the only soil that actually received the seed in which the seed took root and grew and produced was the soil that had already been prepared to receive the seed. The rest of the soil was not prepared to receive the seed. But the soil that had been prepared to receive the seed is the soil that produced, if you will, or that, in which it took root and it therefore produced in the life. So it's living in the truth and growing in the truth, which results in fruit being manifested in one's life that is the true evidence, part of one of the evidences of a heart that has been changed and a life that has been transformed by the truth. So we must remember that the evidence of one's love for truth is not in a desire to only know truth, but it is in the desire and submission to truth. So in other words, a love for truth will produce a deep desire for one's life to continue to be changed by truth. I like routine. I do. I have routines. I have structure in my life. I have organization in my life to a degree. But I mean, I have routines, I have organization, I like routine, I like organization. I like for things to continue, I like to know what I'm going to get up and do and know where to go, how to go, know what I'm doing. I like, I like to be able to pick up my phone and look and have everything outlined in my calendar. That's the way I roll, that's how I'm geared, that's how I operate. So my point in saying all that is this, I don't really like change a whole lot. 
Now, I don't want the same mundane thing all the time, but I'm saying change in the sense of I don't like my routine to be disrupted. You could ask my wife, and she will tell you that that's true. I like when I have my mindset on something. I like to accomplish what I have my mindset on, and that's it. I don't want any interruption. I want to just be able to do what I need to do. That's how I'm here. I don't, I'm not greatly fond of change, personally speaking, as it would go on in my life. But let me say this. I love truth, and I desire for truth to disrupt my life continually. Because I want truth, I want to be changed by the truth. And that is evidence of genuine love for truth. It's not just knowing something, but it's desiring to learn and grow and be transformed for the change to be continually taking place within our lives. Fifth is the righteousness test, chapter 2, 25-29. We'll read verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Everyone who is in genuine fellowship with the Lord Jesus knows that he is righteous, and John previously declared that Jesus is the righteous in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John explains that one of the sure ways we know or understand that someone is born again or of God is that that person does or practice, that is, they do or they practice righteousness. So the test of righteousness is simply this. All those who are in Jesus, the personification of the righteousness of God, Jesus himself, will also live in his righteousness, which will inevitably be manifested in and through the lives of all of those who abide or continue in him, in Christ. We do not practice righteousness that we might become righteous, but we live in righteousness because we have been declared righteous by God and because his righteousness lives in us. We do not do something to become something. We do because we already are. We've already been declared to be. And we live in righteousness because righteousness lives in us. Christ is the very personification of the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God in the flesh. And it is Christ, His Spirit, that dwells in us, in those who know Him, and those who are in fellowship with Him. So if we know God, if we're in a relationship with Him, and we are in fellowship with Him, then we live in righteousness, in His righteousness, because His righteousness is living in us. Then 6, the sanctification test, chapter 3, 1 through 10. We'll read verses 4 through 5, beginning, Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. The meaning of the word committeth, as used in this verse, means to perform or to practice. And as we examine John's statements in verses 4 and 5, we must consider John's statement in verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purified himself even as he is pure. Even as he is pure, he said. So John explains that those who have the hope or confidence of being changed like unto Christ will live and continue in the purity of Christ. And the term transgresseth, the law, means lawlessness. Verses 6 through 8 goes on to say, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. All those who abide, all those who remain, all those who continue in Christ, through the redemptive work of God, do not continue in or practice a life of sin. The truth is that those who practice sin are not only wicked because they sin, 
but they sin because they are wicked. Just like I said a moment ago, for those who continue in righteousness, it's not we do righteousness to become righteous, it's that righteousness comes forth from us because it is right, the righteousness of God through Christ which is living in us. So in like manner, those who do practice or live in righteousness are righteous even as or because He, Jesus, is righteous. This is not saying that one's acts of righteousness make them righteous again by any means, but that they act in righteousness because they are declared righteous in Christ. Verses 9 and 10. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So notice what he says here. He doesn't again limit it to only, oh, so if you don't do good, then, oh, guess what? You're not of God. He says, Neither if he does not good and does not love his brother. Here again he shows us this is not limited to one evidence of one test which we experience. But this is the evidence of this entire culmination of tests which John gives. And so if one says, well, I, I live a pretty good life, but yet they do not have a love for God or a love for the brethren, first of all, that life is not good at all. It's wickedness before God, which, by the way, let me remind you, the only real judge is God himself. He's the judge of eternity. And so the fact of the matter is one can say, oh, I, I do pretty good. I'm living my life pretty well. I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to do right by my fellow man. And I'm trying to, to, to be productive in the world. But hear me. If you do not love your brother, you're not of God. <laughs> or someone says, oh, I love the church. And I love going to church. And I love fellowship. And yet their life is full of wickedness. Then they're not of God. Are you seeing this? It's not one of many, and that's the evidence. It's all of these evidences in your life. So John explains in verses 9 and 10, and we've gone through this in detail, but let me just again briefly review it. John explains in verses 9 and 10 that those who are born again cannot continue to practice sin. That's what the meaning is here. And this is the reason. His seed, Jesus, remains in those who are born again. So if Jesus is righteous, and he is, and if Jesus is sinless, and he is, and if Jesus is our life, and he is, for all those who've been born again, then how can someone in whom Christ dwells live their lives practicing sin? That's the argument John is making, and he says it makes no sense. So I say to you that the sanctification test is not one by which we measure our ability to look righteous or how well we are able to resist sin. By the way, I would say in most cases, people think of sanctification, again, in a sense of, oh, well, I, I resist sin, therefore I'm being sanctified. Sanctification is not your resistance of sin. Sanctification is that God has separated you unto himself, which therefore removes you from sin. That is a continual life of practicing sin is what we're referring to here, or what John is referring to here. The transformation of the new birth results in a new life which will hunger, pursue, and live out the righteousness of Jesus Christ which has been imputed into that life. Imputation, or this imputed, means that to impute is that it is placed in our account. It's accredited to our account. And so again, when God sees me, He does not see my wickedness and my sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if that is true, it's not simply that, oh... That's all God really sees, but the truth is I'm still extremely wicked. No, you've been set apart unto God. You are not, let me, let me say it to you like this. 
We are not sinners attempting to become saints. We are saints who just simply continue to sin from time to time. The point is this. It's not that we are trying to become something good. It's that God has declared us righteous, and yet despite that fact, we live in a sinful, fleshly nature that still sins. But again, as Paul says in Romans 7 and Galatians 5, obviously there is this desire and hunger for righteousness which exists within the life of those in whom righteousness dwells. 7, the discernment test, chapters four, or chapter 4, 1 through 6, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Verse 6, we are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So discernment is present where God's spirit is present. It's really just that simple. One who faithfully commits himself to the truth of the scriptures, desiring for truth to change him, and living in submission to the Holy Spirit who teaches, guides, and reminds us of all truth, he will receive the truth of Jesus and be transformed by God's truth. And when he says to try the spirits again, this is not some mystical command or a command given to some mystical uh, uh, exercise or practice. What he is talking about in discernment and trying the spirits is that we are to test or prove those false prophets, the spirits of those who claim to be prophets, and see whether they be false or whether they be true, not based upon some subjective feeling that we have or emotion, but based solely upon the truth of God's Word. So we look at what someone claims compared to contextual truth of the Word of God, and that is discernment of the Spirit of God to guide us into His truth, which will reveal whether or not this is of God. And then last, number eight, the fear test. And we didn't name it this, we named it perfect love. But it's really the fear test in chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. We'll read verses 17 and 18 right now. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Herein means in this or by this, and in using this word, John again refers us to the previously stated truth. So we look back to verse 16 to see what John is speaking of. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein, in this we know that love is made perfect. How? That we have boldness in the day of judgment. Because, and this is the reason why we have boldness, because as he is, as Christ is, so are we in this world. So John is saying that we both have knowledge of God's love, and in knowing this love, we have complete trust in this love of God, which we received and in which we live. So it is, knowing, it is in knowing God and relying totally in His love for us, His provision for us in Christ, as expressed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God's love is then perfected in us. And perfect in this verse means complete or finish. So John is explaining that it is in our maturity in God's love as we totally trust, completely relying in His provision and expression of His love in Jesus Christ, that we have boldness, we have confidence in the day of judgment. And then he goes on to say again, because as he is, so are we in this world. So again, what does he mean by that? Well, this is what he means. As Christ is righteous, so we are righteous in him in this world. As Christ is holy, so we are holy in him in this world. As Christ is loved of the Father, so we are loved of the Father in him. In this present world, as Christ is accepted by the Father, so we are accepted in Him, made to be accepted in Him in this present world. As Christ is pleasing to the Father, so we are pleasing to the Father in Him in this present 
world. What he's saying is, as Jesus is so before the Father, as Jesus is right now in, 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 at the right hand of the Father, so are we in this present world. In other words, God can no more refuse us who are in Jesus than he can refuse his own son in whom he's already accepted and said he is well pleased. Now I say to you, that provides us boldness in the day of judgment. Because we recognize it is not we, our performance, our actions, our faithfulness, none of this is what is actually being judged. Now, our works will be judged as followers of Christ, and that's a whole nother situation. That's not what John is speaking of. He's saying that the judgment upon, when we stand in judgment, which for the believer is the judgment of our works, we're not standing there in fear of our eternal fate. We're not standing there in fear that God is going to strike down wrath upon us. No, we stand in the boldness of Jesus Christ, because as he is, that is exactly how God views us even right now. Those who are in Jesus do not fear judgment, for the love of God in Jesus Christ has eradicated the fear of judgment and the torment that is associated with judgment. If one fears God's judgment, it is because they do not have confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hear me, if you have confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and if you understand that you have a relationship with God and a fellowship with God, not based on a prayer you prayed, not based on on an emotional feeling you experience, not based on some sensationalism within a church service, not based on even how well you performed today, yesterday, or this year, but solely based upon the finished work of Christ as evidenced in your life by the proof of the evidence that John has provided for us throughout this epistle, then you have no need to be scared of God whatsoever. Why am I not scared of God? Oh, I reverence Him I fear him as my father, meaning I respect him and have a deep-seated reverence for who he is. He's the God of the universe who has loved me, but that's the point. He loves me as his child. I see him now as my father, not as my judge, but as my father who loves me so much so that he slew his only begotten on my behalf that I might know him and be in fellowship with him. Why would I be scared of him? I didn't say I don't respect and reverence him, but why would I be scared of him if he is my father who has demonstrated such love to me? I know that there is no wrath reserved for me because it's been exhausted upon the Lord Jesus Christ on my behalf. There's no fear in the day of judgment. We do not fear God in judgment. We reverence God as our father. We love him because John said he first loved us. In our study of 1 John 5, we will discover as we enter into this text in the weeks ahead that John will again articulate how one knows or understands that they are truly in fellowship with God in the summarization. There's a, this summarization. This is a very black and white issue. There is no room for error here, and John's not leaving any room for error. Listen, you need to hear this, okay? In all of this study thus far, I've made a mention many times that these are black and white statements. These are definitive statements. These are absolute statements. And the reason they are such is because John provides and articulates the truth in such a manner that he makes it very clear for us to understand as to whether or not we have fellowship with God, whether or not we are in a relationship with God. And there is no room for error. For this is an eternal matter, 
which has eternal consequence. One should never make a claim of fellowship with God if or when there is not clear scriptural evidence to support such a claim. And John makes it extremely clear that the evidence of genuine fellowship with God is overwhelming in the life of the one who truly possesses a relationship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to go searching for this evidence. This evidence will be making itself clearly known in and through your life when you are resting and trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And again, it's not one evidence. And I love this about what John is saying. And you should too. Too many people, listen, too many people are clinging to some false hope some false belief, some false sense of security, quote-unquote, because they say, oh, I went down to an altar one day and I asked Jesus in my heart. That means nothing. Absolutely nothing. I've been in church all my life. So what? I go every service. So what? I'm involved in every ministry. So what? None of this means anything. John is laying out the evidence, and it's clearly black and white. Either this is true or this is not true. And there is no middle ground here. There's no area of gray in these matters. There's no room for confusion. There's no room he leaves for error. They are absolute, definitive, black and white statements of truth by which we examine our lives looking back and saying, is this true or is it not true? And the evidence is not hinged, or the proof is not hinged in one evidence, but in them all. Now, we still sin, right? And John covers that. He deals with that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But we do not practice sin. We do not love perfectly, but love is perfected in us. Are you seeing? The human side of us fails, yes, but that does not eradicate the evidence of God's finished work that is accomplished in us. And so we'll see in chapter 5 the summarization that the clear, clearly stated truth by which we know, meaning not, I just have this confidence, but that's true, by which we understand that we are of God and that God is in us.